Hello fam, this is Ro and you're listening to Sick of Being Sick. Please follow, like, subscribe or do whatever it is that your app does to listen to our upcoming episodes. Hello fam, thank you so much for tuning in to episode 9. For this one, we are talking to someone super special to me, somebody who's really helped me through my uh, beginnings of cancer journey, and I found her on Instagram. She's one of my social Instagram friends. Her name is Emily at Wonky Arm on Instagram. She has been fighting cancer since she was 20. Um, she's been diagnosed with even sarcoma three times since then and has recently been given some unfortunate news about her diagnosis where she's been uh, diagnosed terminal and she shares all that process with us and her whole story of how she's you know received the news but how she still has so much hope to fight forward and how we're here to fight for her Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for joining us today at Sick of Being Sick. Super excited to have you. Thank you. Obviously, I'm excited to be here as well. Yeah. Well, <laughs> first of all, um, I kind of want to kick it off. We're asking you, when did your cancer journey begin and um, where is it at now? Yeah. So I'll try to give the Cliff Notes version of it because my cancer journey has just continued to grow and grow and a story that you know would take five minutes a, a couple of years ago now I feel like I could talk for hours for um but uh so my journey started when I was 20 and just about to turn 21 um I had pain in my arm that I had complained to my doctor about for nearly over a year. And I was just kind of uh, shoved off or medically gaslit, as I like to say, um, being told, you know, you're a young girl, you're active, you you play sports, you run, you're bound to feel pain. Um, it's not as bad as you think, you, you know, you probably just need physio. Um, and he, he didn't, he, he didn't actually listen to what I was trying to say. Um, but eventually I wound up in the emergency room with just extreme amount of pain and, uh, the doctor, and I was demanding just all these tests. I was like, I want an MRI. I want a CAT scan. I want this and that and the other. And I, I didn't think an x-ray was enough, but my tumor had grown so large by that point that they could definitely see it on an x-ray. Um, and the the doctor that was overseeing the unit that night came in and it, it was weird. He apologized to me uh, that, you know, I, I've had to wait a year and I've, I've had this frustration of feeling like nobody'd listened to me. And, you know, that was the first indication to me that something wasn't right because I've never had a doctor kind of apologize to me. Um, but he said, things are going to move really quickly. We've referred you to the hand and upper limb clinic. Um, you'll probably hear from them soon. And within days I did, uh, and I was sitting in the little, um, you know, room, doctor's room that they, uh, come and say, I'm losing the word for it, but whatever. But, um, yeah, so they came in and they had my x-rays on a screen 
And they kind of explained to me that there's a lesion all the way down my arm. And I had no, I, I had no idea what that term meant. Um, so I had to ask further questions of what a lesion was. And they were, were just trying to dance around the subject and say, you know, a lesion is just something abnormal in your scan or on your bone. So it could be just, you know, a cut in your bone, a break in your bone or things like that. Um, but they referred me to um, a, an orthopedic surgeon from there. And uh, they said, you'll be going to the cancer clinic. And my mom and I were just shocked at that point. Like, how did we go from, you know, thinking that maybe I had broken my arm without knowing it to you're going to a cancer clinic? Like, I never thought in my life that that those words would be said to me or I would ever have to go to that part of the hospital. Um from there, I did, uh, you know, I met my oncologist and I met my surgeon and they explained to me, you know, you're, you have a you have a tumor. They did a biopsy to show that it was ooing sarcoma and um, that things moved really quickly. And I was in chemo pretty shortly after. I think it was two weeks after all of this had started. I was in chemo and it was five days inpatient. So I would stay overnight at the hospital um, and I was attached to the IV pole for 23 hours of the day. I only got an hour unhooked each day uh, where I could co- like walk around without the pole and go outside and, you know, maybe go in for a dr- quick drive and get McDonald's, you know, Um so I did four rounds of chemo before doing a surgery. Um, and it was, it was a, the surgery and after the surgery was a very difficult time for me because I, I was not properly told or it wasn't properly explained to me that I would come out of the surgery with a disability, um, that they were taking such a large portion of my arm out and, uh, basically making my shoulder joint inactive. Um, so, so that was difficult to wake up and kind of ask, you know, what are the next steps? Uh, how's physio going to work? When will I be able to, you know, use my arm again and have the surgeon basically say, oh, never, like your, your shoulder joint just won't work. You'll be able to use your wrist and your elbow, but you know, you can't use the function of your shoulder. And uh, I was on morphine. I was, you know, just out of surgery and hearing that news was just gut wrenching. I had a panic attack um, in that moment. And I was just, you know, listing off all of the things that like, I will never be able to do this again. I won't be able to do this again. And it was just yeah, it was just kind of a really, really tough moment in my journey. Um, I still had to do uh, four more rounds of chemotherapy after that. Um, And then effectively, they told me, you know, you're in a state of NED. So no evidence of disease at this point. Um, And that's when you start to go for your three-month scan, and then it turns into a six-month scan. 
and then it turns into a year. And uh, so I had gotten, you know, through all those steps of three months, six months, a year, and it had been seven years down the line, and I started to feel the same eerily similar pain in my chest. Um, I did go to my family doctor first, and he did take me quite seriously. But when they found a lesion on my rib, they didn't attribute it to cancer. They just said, you you know, on your left side, you, your right arm is um, immobile. So you overuse your left arm. This is probably an injury from that. And we'll just check up on you in three months. And I pushed a bit further this time because I had learned from previous experiences to advocate a bit harder and push a little harder for, you know, check this out. And um, I did question why they weren't concerned what made it look like, you know, something they wouldn't be concerned about as opposed to being worried that the cancer has returned. And uh, he just said, you know, this is what the technicians have said and they, they're the experts in it. And I'm looking at it too, and it and doesn't look abnormal. And uh, um, I believed them at that point because what what else am I supposed to do? Uh, but literally four months after that, um, they found a tumor in my chest. It had begun on the rib where the lesion was, and it was growing through my lung towards my heart sac and it had reached my heart sac. So um, it was just devastating to be told that I had cancer again seven years later. Um, I did the same chemo regimen and I did uh, a surgery to remove uh, the tumor um, portions of two of my ribs and a portion of my lung. After that surgery, I started to have pain in my back and I would tell my doctor about it, my surgeon about it, but every scan they did was just for my chest. And, you know, I kept complaining about my back and then eventually, you know, I again, I was gaslit. I was told you just did a surgery, like you're going to be in pain. It's nothing to worry about. It's you're, you're fine. You're healing. And I I would say, like, even though it's my back, like, but we had done a few x-rays and they didn't, they they said that they hadn't seen anything, uh, but they were only looking at my chest. They weren't looking at my back. Um, And then when I was at my three month scan to see, you know, if anything was growing after the surgery, they did find a tumor on my back. And so I, again, I was absolutely devastated, but this time I think I would describe my emotions more as pissed off. And I kind of told off my doctors in saying, look, this is three times now that like I've, I've known something was wrong and I felt pain and I have been ignored and I, you know, it was just tough. It was really tough. Um, And luckily, like my oncology team, they understood where I was coming from. 
And from that point on, they took every pain that I had very seriously. Um, But I went through treatment for my back. And then I decided to come to Ireland for a few months. And that was because my oncologist, when they had found the tumor in my back, uh, she told me that with how quickly the tumor had come back after doing radiation, chemo, and surgery, um, that I could be in for a, for a big fight ahead and that they're anticipating other tumors to pop up in other areas. So they did do like a full body bone scan and some MRIs and, and a CAT scan, and they didn't find anything else anywhere. Um, so I did the treatment, which was, which was uh, radiation for my back. And I left to Ireland two weeks after I was done <laughs> radiation because it was at that point of just, you know, I have been in the hospital so long and I have been this girl with cancer for so long that I just wanted to leave and do something for myself. And I ended up going to Spain and, you know, spent some time in different places of the, uh, the South, like Southern Ireland and uh, it was good until I started feeling pain in my chest and I was trying to figure out if it was something to be worried about or, you know, maybe I'm overdoing it. Um, and I was really worried. But what really caught me off guard was my breathing had changed, my ability uh to do long walks or exercise. I was huffing and puffing after a minute of walking. And that was so abnormal to me. Um, so because I am a citizen in Ireland, I do have um, certain certificates and things over here that allowed me to get a gener- like a GP, a doctor. Um, and he referred me to an oncologist and a palliative care team. Um, so I, I saw, I went in and saw them and that day they admitted me into the palliative care ward because they were very, very worried about the pain that I was describing and, uh, the change in my ability to breathe. Um, after some scans, they had a very difficult discussion with me and, uh, they told me, and my family, my mom and dad, um, that I was, uh, that the, the, the tumor in my back had metastasized to the pleura of my lung. So that's the outer casing of your lung and it's wrapping all around it. Um, they described to me that surgery is not an option because of the location it is. Um, they said radiation is, is not really an option because it's not like radiation is a targeted treatment. So it, it's targeted at one place. And this was the whole of my lung that's, uh, that's covered in, in the cancer cells. Um, and they also agreed with my oncologist back home because my records were sent over that I had likely um, become resistant to chemo because they're the second the second time I had 
the same chemo, my body didn't react the same way. And my tumor didn't shrink as much as it did before. Because you can become resistant to chemo, you can't just get it over and over again for um, your cancer, because uh, your body adapts. Um, and learns how to fight against it. So they were basically explaining to us that there was no option. Um, and then I started to ask the hard questions. Uh, I asked what stage they would consider my cancer at then. And they said stage four. And I had to ask, well, what does that mean? Like, well, I hear sta stage four everywhere, you know, and I, I don't really know what that means. Um, and they explained that, you know, it's terminal and yeah, that stage four means it is metastasized um, and spread through the bloodstream and it is likely terminal. And so I asked, well, you know, I'd like, is if, if it's terminal, like I would like to know how much time I have left. Um, you know, if it's a short amount of time, like I'd obviously like to know that. And, uh, he, he asked me what I thought short was. And I said months and the room went very quiet and the palliative care nurse or palliative care doctor and the oncologist and all their nurses or their, their fellows looked at each other. And then the oncologist looked back at me and said, well, yeah, we, we, we can only estimate. That's all we can do. But with how aggressive it is and how fast it's growing, we expect that it'll take your life within months. Um, they didn't tell me how many months uh, or anything like that because I kind of, you know, I went into shock mode after that where, I didn't know what to say. I didn't even know any other questions to ask. Um, I was ready just to kind of come back and crawl into bed and and just digest the news. Um, but I knew I needed to talk to my sisters and, and tell them and tell my family in Canada back at home. Um, your mind just starts racing, I think, when you're told you have cancer at any stage, whether you're told the first time, the second or the third, fourth, whatever it is, your mind just starts racing of like, oh, God, I've got to do this. I've got to tell this person I've got to do like, I've got to, you know, quit my job. I've got to stop my schooling. I've got, you know, like there's my mind just started racing. Um, and yeah, I had to make the decision of whether to stay in Ireland and get treatment or help over here or go home and be with the majority of my family. And, uh, and that's what I chose to do. So that's where I am today. I'm literally flying. I'm in the hospital room in the palliative care ward and I'm flying home on Wednesday. So that's two days from now. Um, and that's kind of where my cancer story is at right now. Thank you so much for sharing. I mean, I think you're so, so brave for even like being in the situation you are coming in the mic and like sharing your story at this stage, you know, like I'm sure it's really hard to to speak about it even so recently. Um, 
Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've also had a decent amount of practice because you've been telling a lot of people um, in your, <laughs> in your, you know, in your, in your close circle of what's happening with you now. Yeah, yeah. But I totally, yeah, I can understand that. Um, I kind of want to go back to a few things that you mentioned throughout your whole journey. Of course, yeah. It's interesting that they told you about the lesion thing because I also got that. Um, they kept, you know, dancing around the term lesion versus mass, and it was like. I think the first time I hear the definition from lesion is from you because <laughs> I didn't even ask the doctors. Um, so that is interesting that that's kind of just like I feel a common thread for yeah. us. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like they use this jargon around us and yeah. expect us to fucking, sorry to swear, <laughs> but they expect us Explicit. To, <laughs> to just know what they're talking about. And then if you're in shock because you've just been told you have a, a tumor somewhere Something, in your body, yeah. you're not thinking straight. And so you don't, you, you're not thinking clearly either. You're not thinking clear enough to ask like, oh, what does that even mean? Um, this time I'm even shocked that I... I had asked, okay, what does stage four actually mean? Mm-hmm. And if it's terminal, how many months do I have? Like, mm-hmm. or how, you know, what, how much yeah, time yeah. do I have? But um, yeah, lesion, lesion was one of the first terms I heard. And I did ask, cause I, I was curious and I didn't understand what they were showing me on the x-ray. Like uh, there was just a, like a, a white fuzziness yeah. over my bone. And um and they uh, they called that whole thing a lesion. And he basically said it was just a general term for something um, wrong with the bone. Like uh, you could break your arm and they would say like there's a lesion in the bone, you know. So um, that's what I, you know, I'm not a dictionary, a medical dictionary. But uh, that's my understanding of what a, a lesion is. Yeah. And... Well, you're just such an inspiration because also you've asked all these hard questions that like I continuously dance around. And every time I go to my oncologist, I'm like, "Mm, (laughs) do I want to talk about this or not? And I feel like I let every meeting go by and like um, you're definitely at a very different stage than I am. I've just started my treatment, but um, it's really inspirational to see, you know, how much you've grown from the start of this to like Mm -hmm. where you're at now. And that you still, and you know, like before even getting on recording this, you were telling me, you know, like you still have the fire in you to fight and you want to go back to Canada and get your other opinions, go back to your team. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, it doesn't have to end at what these teams says because numbers are just numbers. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. And I mean, like I mentioned in my cancer story, doctors have been wrong (laughs) in my story, particularly many times so i'm i'm hoping that they were telling me worst case rather than best case and i'm hoping to go back to my team who knows my story a bit better and is not just reading it off of a piece of paper through scans and doctor notes and and things like that they only have had i feel like you know they the doctors in ireland they only have half the story i want to go home to my oncologist who has the full story and see what she thinks about the situation and what we can do. And, you know, if, if it is months, I'll turn it into many months 
And if it is years, then I'm happy with that. If there's something we can do to help me live a long and happy life, like I will do it. But mm-hmm. I I think it's it's always good to kind of get a second opinion or at least push a little harder when you when you don't think what your doctor's saying is is kind of right. Like yeah. and I have I've learned that through my journey. Um the first time I just accepted the news. The second time I kind of questioned it a bit more. And the third time I was very firm about, you know, advocating like I know my body better than you guys do. So at, at this point now, me being right three times, I need you guys to listen to me when I have an issue or when I come to you with pain. I'm not just going to come to you with a little, you know, light ache in my knee. I'm going to come mm-hmm. to you when I know that it's that bone ache that I'm so used to now. So yeah, I'm I'm ready to go home and and see what they say and I'm I am as hopeful as can be that they're going to say something different but you know that's all I can do right now. Yep. I have hope for hope for you too or hopefully there's you know like medical studies like you can still you know there's so much that you can hopefully um get access to once you're back in yeah. Canada or the US the world is your oyster. Yeah. Um so Cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing for that with that. Um, something that really resonated with me as well was when you said when you thought maybe you're overdoing it, the fact that the medical system has gotten you to even like knowing that you know your body so well, that has gotten you to second guess yourself at this mm-hmm. point mm-hmm. is really disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know, you're definitely a better reading your body than I am at reading mine. Cause something I really struggled with myself is like reading my body and understanding what I'm feeling or not feeling, or like mm-hmm. if it's coming from anxiety or not, I feel like the brain is a bit more confusing because oftentimes it can, the feeling of fear could be something that's actually wrong in the brain versus mm-hmm. that of just anxiety. Um, yeah. But when you, when you said no, that, it was really sad thing. that like the medical systems really got didn't you to that place (laughs) yeah a few times I mean and I'm trying to be a bit more aware of it but medical gaslighting is a thing and I think we do have to advocate especially as a young woman um a little harder for Mm -hmm. for ourselves um because I think we're often told that we can't like we can't handle the pain or you know, it's hormonal. Or, it's hormonal. Yeah. yeah. They blame yeah. it on so many things that yeah. has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm coming to complain about. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's difficult and we need to be aware of when that's happening to us. And like I said, we just, we just need to know, we, we need to understand that we do know our bodies better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And we need to listen to it when it's communicating these things to us. But I can understand in your case that that's a bit different. um, Because your, your tumor was in your brain. And yeah, like it, it, it could, <laughs> you don't know if it's anxiety or if it's, if it's something acting up that you should be worried about. And I can't imagine how hard that could be. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, well, I kind of want to go back to like those seven years 
of hopefully happiness you had in between. Um, and were there like any learnings that you took from your first sort of cancer experience to those seven years that you constantly applied? Yeah, well, I'm after I was done cancer, I actually started a blog about cancer and mm -hmm. um, having a disability. And I learned that for me, at least, writing was a good coping mechanism um, to get out some feelings uh, and to express some things um, in that way through writing. Uh, and it, and it, it turned into, you know, a person or it became a personal journal online for me. And then it turned into a, a place and a platform where I was helping others. And that was just really, really humbling for me. And um, I was very happy that I was able to do that. Um, but I also learned that like, cancer doesn't just end when you're done your treatment. Um, it follows you closely behind as you try to live your life. Um, you know, you, you get terrified at, e at each scan that's coming up. Um, even when I was at my yearly scans and I had no pain or no issues, I would just get so anxious <laughs> and terrified to go into the hospital and get that scan done and see these people, my oncologist and everything that I just absolutely wanted to be rid of at that time. Um, but yeah, I learned I, that was a hard thing to learn. Nobody really prepares you that sometimes life after cancer can be just as difficult as life with cancer. Um, you've, you've got, I think when you're going through cancer, you kind of just, you know, you're in survival mode and you're just dealing with it and going through the motions and doing what you're told to be done to get rid of the cancer. Um, and then afterwards, you're kind of like, what do I do now? Um, so that was that was definitely a hard lesson for me that cancer doesn't just end uh, once you're done treatment. Um And, and I learned that it's great to find support in other people that have experienced the same thing as you. I have a great family and my sisters, I'm so close with them and they are amazing, but um, they don't understand what I'm going through as well as someone else who has experienced cancer. So once I had finished cancer, I uh stumbled upon these these different groups um one specifically for women who had or have cancer and uh it, it's just because I've met so many great people through them and when we do our retreats like it's just very helpful and a great experience and I I come out of those retreats feeling like a new person and um Yeah, I, I guess I, I, the, the another lesson is just it, it's good to find a support system of people who have experienced what you have um, just beyond, you know, your family and your friends because um, it's just it makes a world of a difference. 
sorry, I realized I was muted. Yeah, totally agree. It's just like, you know, when you're in school and you've got homework and you want to speak to your classmates about it, your parents can like give you a tip, but like they're still not going through it. It's the same yeah. thing. It's like, it's so important to have people that you can relate to their stories or that in some way you can find hope in their stories and that they can give you their, you know, techniques to fight through specific moments that we find throughout this journey mm-hmm. um so I found that that for me has been also super helpful even just speaking with you in dms like every now and then and asking you questions about yeah you know, it's it's really helpful just knowing that there's always going to be somebody there who can you know just listen and not judge know which questions are like just mm-hmm. icky or like having that support system is so so important mm-hmm. yeah something like not to Oh, so go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Right. Yeah, not to like plug my blog, but no, I'm I'm very sure. proud of where where it started as me just kind of writing for my own sake to mm-hmm. becoming a platform where people like you can reach out and and we can chat about things that nobody else understands. And you know, I've even reached out to people, and I've had I've had loads of people reach out to me to uh, talk to me about things that maybe I've posted or that they related to in my post. And it is, it, it, it feels so much better than just complaining to my sister about something because they're just like, yeah, oh, that sucks. And I don't, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't mean it in a bad way. Of they course. just, that's all they can really say. They can't say like, oh my God, yeah, when I was in the, the hospital too and they gave me the, you know, like they you can't know. really relate to the niche experiences that us as cancer patients experience. So, yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. And then another thing on top of this that I really want to talk to you about is sort of like what it is like experiencing this as a young adult, you know, like when you were first diagnosed, like you're probably still just trying, well, I mean, I am still trying to figure out I'm 27 mm-hmm. who I am. So like being told these news at such a young age, how did this affect, you know, your life from college to relationships, personal goals, etc.? Yeah. Um, it's been very tough. I, I was first diagnosed at 20 and it was a month before I was turning 21 uh, we actually shaved my head on my 21st birthday because I didn't want to do anything for my birthday. But my sisters were all like, no, let's let's get together. So we were at my mom's house and my hair at that point was just falling out in clumps. And it was a ratted mess. And mm-hmm. I had bald spots at the back of my head. Um, and I just said to Sarah, just shave it like because my sorry <laughs> side note my sister is a hairdresser so I said just shave it all off I, I don't even care anymore and it really affected my identity I didn't want to look at my so I wore a hat to bed that night because I didn't want my boyfriend to to see me and um, I woke up the next day and I didn't even want to look in the mirror or anything Um I just was so upset. Like I, you know, I, that day I lost a huge part of me and not only that, but a part 
like you don't really even realize how much your hair is a part of your identity and when it's taken away from you what that can do to <laughs> your mental state um but what kind of got me a bit through it is my stepdad shaved his head as well and sent me a photo and uh and I was like, oh, that's that's really sweet. That's funny. And then he started sending me all these beautiful actresses that had to had that had to go bald for a, a role. Um, and he was like, you look like her. You look like her. And it it kind of gave me the confidence to finally look in the mirror, take the hat off and and start to try to love myself again. Um but with that aside, I was also in school at the time and I had to go uh, speak to the dean of the college and tell them that I was pulling out because of cancer. Um, and I had I literally had one year left and uh, and they they let me come back after I was done treatment. Um, but it was difficult to come back with a disability and with you know, my hair half growing back. Um, so I actually kind of pulled out and didn't, didn't fully complete, uh, my degree. Um, I remember asking for support and accessibility for an exam because I couldn't write. Like I was, I was in English and sociology. So it was a lot of written exams, um, where you're writing essays and, I had asked for support um, and there was not adequate information at my college. Uh, I wasn't even really told like you had to go to a new, a different room and do it on a different day. Like I, I didn't know how I was supposed to find out that information. So um, it was very difficult for me and I don't think I did well in my exams and I ended up just, kind of dropping out because I I couldn't do it anymore. I was just so, so overwhelmed and so disheartened um, thinking that like my disability wasn't validated enough as a disability uh, because you can't really, if I'm wearing a t-shirt or a sweater, you can't really see my scars. And even if you see my scars, you may just think like she got into a car accident or she had a major surgery. You don't see that I I can't use my arm and the pain that it, that it's in. And so the school didn't really classify me as having a disability, and it made it very difficult to to get um, to get help. So that was also a very difficult time, and and so I dropped out of school. It definitely made it it hard. Um, and yeah, and then, <laughs> but with that being said, that's just my journey. But I think when you're going through cancer, um, as a young adult, you kind of have to make those decisions with school. Like if you were in the middle of school and you have to stop it for treatment, like that's awful. And to go back into it too, to jump back into it, like, it it's it's quite difficult um from my perspective um but yeah and then relationships i mean at the time i was in a long term relationship i had already been with him uh for 7 years at that point uh, 6 or 7 years um 
and he was great. He helped me through everything. Uh, but it did affect our sex life. And, you know, I didn't have the drive for it. And I was worried and anxious and scared all the time that, you know, he didn't find me attractive. Um, so that's another thing that kind of happens as, as a young adult, you're trying to establish yourself in a relationship or even find like, like this time I was single going through cancer and I would have loved a companion. I would have loved, you know, someone close to me that kind of would hear my woes or cuddle me at night, but nobody wants to date the bald girl. And it's just awful. I'm sorry to say that. <laughs> I don't it's 100% that to true. You, but I <laughs> didn't want to. And then I did. I ended up making, because um, I wanted to see. I ended up making a, a hinge profile when my hair started growing back. And it was it was short. And I thought it was edgy. And I was rocking it. And I looked yeah. good. And I got significantly less requests or matches than I had when I had long blonde hair and the people that did message me always wanted to know why is your hair so short and the the two guys that I did meet and did I I won't say that I was in like I liked them or anything but I gave them a chance and went on a date with them (laughs) and as soon as they found out that, you know, because every question becomes about your cancer. It's like, why is your hair so short? Do I either lie or tell you about my cancer? And then they ask me why I can't really use that arm. And I either lie or tell them about cancer. And it's tough. It's like, why do we have to talk about, or I felt like I was expected to talk about this really personal thing in my life when I don't even know your mother's name. Like we're not <laughs> at that level where we're giving our, you know, yeah. deep secrets or, you know, like I don't know why I have to tell you something that was a very personal and hard thing for me to go through when you're not expressing those things to me. We're at that light stage of getting to know each other. But either way, whenever cancer was kind of thrown into the deal, they weren't interested anymore. And it it was, you know, fun, more or less funny to watch for me to see that, like, you liked me, you liked my talk, like, we, you know, we chatted back and forth, we had this banter, um, we clearly connected on some levels, but as soon I become instantly unattractive as soon as I tell you I have, I had cancer and, and that, that to me is just disturbing. And it actually happened recently too. Someone was reaching out. um, uh, Someone from my past was reaching out and chatting with me and talking to me. And as soon as I posted, because they do follow my, my blog page, as soon as I posted that, you know, I was in the hospital in Ireland and, um, you know, the cancer was back, ghosted, no messages, hasn't even said like, oh my gosh, I hope you're okay. You know? Well, I hope he listens to this episode 
and realizes that he's a dickhead. Yeah, you're a dick. <laughs> um, I love that you bring up the topic of dating because I think that, that for me has been like something that I've been thinking about so much because mm -hmm. I'm not only like, well, I used to live in New York and I left New York during the pandemic and I came to live in Madrid, but it was more so like a temporary thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And now that I'm like here, at least for like a good year, um, I was really toying with the idea. Like for me, the shaved head, like once I have the buzz, I, I do, I do love it. Like I'm very, yeah. you know, alternative in that way. Yeah. Um, but like with this, it was like, I was trying to make like a hinge and a bumble profile and I was either going the route of like, aggressively showing off I had cancer and how much of a warrior I was mm -hmm. and then whoever you know swiped right on that then it showed their character and they knew what yeah. they were in for or trying to kind of like sugarcoat it and like put some cool pictures of who I was before this yeah and then like once again as you're saying get to the conversation and then be like uh and it's also like I can also empathize with the person on the other end because like you don't know this person what we're going through is very intense you're already signing up for something that's very intense that you didn't even know mm -hmm. you were you know what I mean mm -hmm. so to a certain extent I can empathize with that um I will not empathize with the dickhead that um ghosted you because that's just rude mm -hmm. <laughs> but for me it was mostly like damn like am I limited to the circle of people who already know me Is yeah. that, you know, who know who I am for who I am rather than like this layer of cancer that just screams cancer all over. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the dating, the dating component is really hard. It is. And, you know, we're at that age where we do want to we yeah. do want to find someone or we're watching our friends get married and and pop out kids or buy puppies as, <laughs> as, a, as a replacement for them. But I yeah, like it. That was just the biggest change for me um, the first time having cancer and having, you know, a, a boyfriend who was amazing and supported me through it to, you know, coming out on the other end of my the, the second time I had cancer and and kind of wanting to date and wanting to try that out because um, I had just left a marriage along. Like, <laughs> so I I wanted to try to date. Um, but I d funny you you bring up empathizing with the other end because I really do empathize with that like I was actually dating someone before I found out the second time that there was a tumor in my chest and I I dumped him and and the reason was I was very clear to him like if I if this is cancer again I think we need to hold off on this relationship um Because I, I couldn't, I, I had seen what it did to to my boyfriend back then, who then became my husband, um, well, ex-husband now. But I, it's, it's very tough on your caretakers too. And it's tough on the people that are the closest with you. Um, so I had only known him for three months. I, I didn't want him as a part of this really personal and hard and difficult thing. Um, but you know, I was trying to date someone after the cancer and when I was returning, I wanted someone to see me for myself rather than, you know, you just finished cancer. And I think it's very hard to leave that label behind. Um, especially if you have, 
physical markers of it. Like, you know, my even if I made a profile right now, I feel like I would be asked, why do you have short hair? Like, and I was, I have been. People have said like, oh, that haircut looks really good on you, but what made you cut off all your hair? I didn't want to. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's horrible. <laughs> yeah, and I and it's also kind of given me this, like, hatred for commenting on people's appearances. Like, I don't know why we as a society have to talk about someone's appearance so often, like, you know, why are you asking about my hair? Why are you asking about my weight? Like, why are you? Yeah, it's, it's uh, totally relatable. (laughs) Yes. People are just nosy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's so hard because it's like, they forget that like, we're going through this and we're we're so I mean we're fucking strong for fighting through things yeah. like this let's just assume that like yeah. yes <laughs> but we're still humans inside <laughs> yeah. so like you know we still want to be seen for who we are and we still as you're saying don't want to be bothered by um things that obviously call out what we're going through yeah um speaking of you know significant others as uh support systems and kind of like what happened to your relationship what have been some other very helpful support systems that have uh worked for you throughout your whole journey yeah definitely my family um I'm aware that I not everybody has the family support that I have I've gotten messages from other people where or seen things online where some people's families can be quite ignorant. But I'm very, very lucky that my three sisters who I'm very close with, you know, drop everything and and be there for me as, as well as they can be. Um, My mom and dad are both great. And my stepdad is amazing too. Um, Even my cousins, I'm quite close with my cousins and my aunt. Uh, And she, they've, They've all been my my biggest support team. I can call on any of them when I need them, and they're just there, and it's amazing. Um, my little niece as well. I have a nephew that I can't wait to meet when I go back to Canada, but my little niece, she's almost two. She is like can brighten up any day. So she's one of my biggest (laughs) supports and she doesn't even know it. (laughs) But uh, but definitely um, cancer support groups in your region or for your demographic. So I'm based, I mean, although I'm in Ireland right now, I am based in Canada and I typically live in Canada. Um, So Pink Pearl Foundation is a Canadian foundation for um, young females who have had or have cancer. And they have a lot of different programs and they do two major retreats throughout the year. Um, Those retreats have become virtual, obviously, because of the pandemic at this point. But um, they still do this. They still have the same result. Um, But yeah, finding those support groups and resources that you can rely on aside from a family member. Um, uh, Like they do scholarships for people or like help you 
Uh, if you're if you're trying to start your own business, they'll help you do that because they truly understand that as a young female having cancer, you're in these crossroads of trying to find yourself in relationships and careers and school. And they really have programs that target those areas and resources that that assist with that. Um, and then there's another one, Young Adult Cancer Canada. Um, I haven't gone to any of their retreats, uh, but I'm in the Facebook group and that alone is just a great way and a great resource to reach out, um, ask a question about something that I'm concerned about and then, you know, to get all, all these responses back. And it's, it's really great. Um, so yeah, I relate to a lot of that. I feel like the family component for me, I've always, I've lived away from home since I was 13 years old in boarding schools no, and then yeah. like living, you know, in the U S and my family all being at home in Spain. So I would say I, I always grew up with my friends so, who were closer to me kind of being mm. my family, but this has been sort of an opportunity we can call it um to really get closer to my family and it's been you know it's so cool you have three sisters because my sister alone goes like above and beyond if I had that three times <laughs> that would be amazing it's great. Um, yeah, but I'm happy with one yeah she listens to this so I don't want her to get offended <laughs> but um yeah and then the support groups I how did you get yourself to come around because there's a Spanish association against cancer and they do do like sort of young adult support groups and more like gatherings, but I always find myself signing up and then like not going or finding an excuse not to be in it just because of like the social anxiety of it. Yes. yes no. I can empathize. Um, the first time I went to a retreat, I literally almost canceled if it wasn't for someone who who I had met through my blog and who had told me about this organization and this retreat and pushed me to sign up and literally said, I will drive you down there. Um, I wouldn't have gone because there yeah. is that social anxiety. And I, I remember being at this retreat and sitting at the table and others are piling in and, you know, we're in this huge um, like ballroom with, with round tables and we're all just, sitting and conjugating and someone I don't know sits beside me and someone I don't know sits across from me. Um, and I remember sitting there being like, Oh, I just want to go home. Like I don't want to yep. talk about my cancer. And, and I, at that point had already had cancer and my hair had grown back. And, um, you know, I, I just felt like I didn't belong, but by the end of it, I knew this was the only place that I belonged. And yeah. it was, it was amazing and, and really helpful. And it taught me so many things that, you know, you, you sometimes can't figure out on your own. And then you're making connections with people that like I I've, have lasted the test of time and I can reach out to them when I'm worried or have a question or, you know, they're all reaching out to me right now in my time of need and seeing, you know, how I'm feeling, like asking the right questions or, doing the right things, um, in this hard time for me. So, uh, yeah, I definitely get that social anxiety, but 
I suggest you push through it and you go to at least one and see how it makes you feel because I I walked out of there shocked and amazed and couldn't wait to speak to the people that I'd met and, you know, and I like, yeah, I, it was just, it was a great experience, but it did start with a lot of social anxiety and me just not even wanting to go. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It feels like first day of school anxiety. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, when you're like new to school and then you're just sitting around and you're like, oh, now I have to introduce myself to all these people and they don't know who I am. Yeah. Um, I felt like the new kid for sure. Yeah. And it also just like, I feel if it was an in-person thing, like I do, I do consider myself quite, I'm like an extroverted introvert. Mm -hmm. Um, So if I'm around people, I can open up, but like behind the screen, I just feel like it's easier to hide. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I feel like with COVID, these sort of experiences have definitely taken a hit. Yeah. And making them more, more virtual is just easier to not click the join button. (laughs) <laughs> versus like having to go to an, you yeah. know, an event space. No, I agree with that because I have, I, I, I did sign up to some virtual retreats. Um, and then I just never showed up because I, I preferred to lay in bed and binge Netflix and yeah. <laughs> eat ice cream. But, um, yeah, no, I, it, it, COVID has really taken a hit on it. And I did go to one of the virtual retreats and, Although it was great and I enjoyed myself, it just, it wasn't the same as being in person. I couldn't just, you know, like when you're all on screen and you're muted because someone's uh, talking or giving a speech, you can't just lean over to the person beside you and, and say something. And then there's no dinner gala that, or something like that, that forces you to kind of mingle. Um you know, so I, I felt like I couldn't even talk to my friends that I was excited to see at this retreat. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, that is hard. It was, it was um, for sure. I guess you have spoken a lot about like the Facebook groups, um, which I have also found really helpful. I found you on Instagram and reached out to you on Instagram. I'm really curious to hear, you know, about how social media has helped you or not helped you um, throughout your journey. For me personally, I have found that social media sometimes, like, if I get too deep in it, I feel like I need to revert a little bit. Um, but yeah, I'm super curious to hear about your journey within that. Yeah, so I, I do have two pages. I have my personal page where I relatively keep cancer off of it. Um, and I don't know why I do that, but it is just something I do. And then I have my blog page. Um where yeah, I post blog, my blog posts, but I also post just, you know, different experiences or relatable advice and things like that. Um, but I found that social media has helped me more than hindered me, um, just in connecting to people. And, you know, I had always said, if nobody reads my blog, I, I still wouldn't care because it is something that I'm doing to myself. But, you know, I'm happy that I've gotten to this stage where my page is helping people and what I write is impacting people as well and is relatable to people in certain ways. Um, 
so that's kind of how social media has helped me. It's helped me kind of grow my blog, but also through that grow the following that I have to be able to like reach out to someone and find like I had never known someone else with doing sarcoma to sort of find three or four or five others who have we can all talk about our doing sarcoma um and they live across the world like I speak to someone who lives in the south of France and and you know we we talk about a lot of things that were similar in our journeys and our experiences um but I can definitely understand where you're coming from. There are days where I feel kind of overwhelmed and I literally put my phone in a different room and I don't want to look at it. I don't want to touch it. And it's be, it's it's not that I'm overwhelmed with messages or with things like that. It's just when I go to my personal page and I'm scrolling through and I'm seeing other people you know, their, their Instagram's life. <laughs> Cause I know that it's always not as perfect behind the scenes, but um, yeah, it's, it's, sometimes it's tough to just be reminded that you're on a completely different path than other people. And it's hard not to compare yourself to their milestones um, and think that you're behind or, you know, not going to make it there. Um, so yeah, sometimes social media is a detriment to me, but, um, most often it has been a platform to express myself and meet other people with, you know, all across the world with all different types of cancer that we can still relate on some things. And, and that feels really good. Yeah, I would definitely agree on the community co- component. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, it feels like we have similar reasons as to why you started your blog and as to why you started this podcast. Yeah. And like, when I started the podcast, I also was like, you know, if only my friends and family listen to it, that's good enough because I don't have to send the same message to 50 different people. They can all just listen to my podcast. Yeah. Um, but, you know, having been able to reach other people and receive messages and feeling like you're helping other people, mm-hmm. even outside of cancer. Like I've received messages from people who've had, you know, difficult surgeries in their mid twenties mm-hmm. and they still feel like it just cuts through their life and like mm-hmm. they have to readapt their life around that. So mm-hmm. that alone, um, I would agree as well as like, although social media can sometimes have like very negative commenting, and there's always going to be the odd coming out that is like horrible. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, for the most part, at least on my TikTok presence, I have received like so much support, um, which is one of the main drivers. I feel like that's helped me really yeah. be stronger uh, at the beginning, at least. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's how I felt about my, my Instagram page for my blog. Cause I had only started it the second time that I had cancer um, and just the the kind comments and the support that I've received there. It just, it does kind of lift you up at, at certain points where, yeah. It's a bit harder. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, um, is there anything else that you want to share? How, what are your like, more tangible little goals that you've set up for yourself, at least in the coming month? 
Well, I mean, I guess this kind of goes back to having cancer as a young adult. Um, it's hard to set long-term goals at points uh, because you don't know where you're going to be. And I did say, you know, a couple weeks ago, I can only live in three-month increments at this point. I need to get to my next scan, be clear, and then move forward. Um, mm -hmm. It's made it very hard to make long-term goals, but I don't necessarily think that it should stop you from, from trying because your brain is very powerful. And I think if you have something to look forward to or work towards, um, you know, it, it helps like mentally. So <laughs> me right now, it is kind of a tough question. I, I think my goal is to get home to Canada <laughs> and hopefully hear something different from my doctor. But I want I want to exceed their expectations. I, I there's no way that I feel this good and am gonna die in a few months. Like I just don't believe that. So um, my goal is to see my my niece turn two, and you know, to meet my nephew and to go back to work, hopefully. Um, but these are all things that I am aiming for, but I am realistic in knowing that some of it may not happen. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, I think at this point, it's difficult to make goals. But if you would have asked me, you know, seven years ago, <laughs> I would have had a different answer. Well, thank you so much. You should definitely write a book <laughs> and share all your wisdom. <laughs> it would be cool to turn um, your your blog into some sort of like, I don't know if you, do you follow Nally on Instagram? I don't know. I might. Um, she, I want to send you her profile, um, oh. but she kind of turned her journal into a book and it just became like bestseller in Amazon in like the matter of a week. I think she's also from Canada. Yeah. Um, um I've thought of I I because I my my post I like to I previously wrote creatively and so my posts are very it's not clinical. I try to write it as if you're reading like a short story. Um so I've kind of discussed with a few of my family members of turning my posts into a book. Um, it's something that I've considered for sure. And, you know, now with the time limit that I have, I am sitting here kind of, th maybe that's another goal. I want to, I want to write a book before I go because I do just, I love writing and it makes me feel good when other people love my writing as well. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing your story mm -hmm. and for joining Sick of Being Sick today. No problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Emily, for joining us for uh, this episode. You can find all of her information in the episode descript description, a link to her Instagram, a link to her blog, and please reach out and send her some love. If you or anyone you know would like to share their story on the podcast, 
please reach out to me via the email on the episode description or the show description. And um, you're more than welcome to come share your story. If you'd like to write a letter, um, if you don't want to come in, you can also write a letter and I'll read it at the end of the next episode. 